John chapter 17 and just one verse, 13. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am in the world, so they may have full measure of my joy within them. And the Old Testament reading is taken from Psalm 16, verses 8 to 12. Psalm 16. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What brings you joy? It is a question that is hard to avoid these days, as joy seems to be the new buzzword. So uh, begins an article that I read recently in The Guardian, and it was an article that was sparked by the publication of a couple of books that um, were both seeking to address why joy seems to be such a rare commodity in our culture and what we can do about it. And uh, the author of the piece uh, said that essentially both books argue that uh, our culture is uh, increasingly gripped by fears and anxieties that are driving out joy. Uh, A fear uh, that stems from a sense of meaninglessness or, or, and or a sense of um, uh, identity that needs to be formed through performance. And uh, these, these things are uh, driving the phenomenon of FOMO, which you may have come across, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out, uh, which is a notorious joy killer. Uh, and also um, the widespread feeling of, uh, the author said, being overstretched overtired and overwhelmed in life and by life. But the writer goes on to say towards the end of her piece that even if we were able to declutter our lives, which is essentially what both books argue is the route to more joy, uh, that might in fact not provide a, a substantial antidote Because, the author says, actually many of us struggle to be at peace with ourselves. So no matter how decluttered our lives, if we cannot be at peace with ourselves, we are going to struggle to be a people of joy. And the article finishes on this pessimistic note. She concludes like this. In these dysfunctional times, joy is a high bar. In these dysfunctional times, joy is a high bar. And that may well resonate for some of us this morning. Joy, I think, can feel a high bar 
as we walk through the valley of the shadow, as the psalmist puts it. It can feel a high bar in seasons of sorrow and of suffering. It can feel a high bar in seasons of struggles and disappointments, perhaps with other people or even with ourselves. It can feel a high bar in seasons of work and stress and family stress or just the daily grind of so much of life. And the question becomes, is the pursuit of joy an unrealistic expectation? Is it even unhealthy to set our sights on joy in this life? It's striking, I think, as we come back to John 17, Jesus' prayer that he prays for his disciples and for us on the eve of his death, that Jesus prays, verse 13, as we've just heard, that we would know joy, his joy. I am coming to you now, he's speaking to his father. I say these things while I'm in the world, that they, that is his disciples and us, may have the full measure of my joy within them. So on the eve of his death, Jesus, I take it Jesus has a joy. And that he's going to his death, that he might share his joy with us. And the question therefore becomes, what kind of joy is this that can survive in a season of suffering? What kind of joy is it that is sustaining Jesus at this time, in this season of suffering? What kind of joy is it that can be shared by Jesus through his suffering? Well, we know it's a joy that can coexist with sorrow, because Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn. So it seems to be the case, Jesus says, um, that we can be those who are mourning and yet still be full of his joy. The Apostle Paul, when he sums up his life, or seasons of his life at least, says this, that he is a man who is sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So what is this joy that the Bible calls us to pursue, that Jesus prays for us to have and dies to give us. I think if we're looking for a word that describes the biblical experience of joy, as many have noted, it would not be happiness, that emotion of jollity, or however one wants to describe it. I think closer, I mean there are several words we could use, I think closer to the biblical experience of joy would be peace or contentment or a sense of uh, well-being. The opposite of joy is not sadness. I think the opposite of joy is fear or hopelessness. But let me say right at the start, I'm not denying the significance, the importance, the goodness of emotions that will flow from this joy. Uh, Christian joy should and often will express itself, of course, in a sense of happiness, an emotional response, an affection. Of course that's the case. And if we don't feel that flowing from joy, as we'll see in a minute, that that usually means we are, of course, in a season of difficulty, a season of struggle, or um, an unusual season. But what I am saying is that joy is not built on these feelings, Uh, It's not 
constrained by these feelings. Rather, it seems to me that biblical joy can be a bedrock that remains when our world is shaken and on which we can rebuild feelings, on which we rebuild an emotional life. So, where does it come from? What is this joy built on? As you uh, listen to Jesus praying in John 17, I think there are three things that jump out that I think are, are sort of foundational to this joy that Jesus has. One is he is profoundly aware of his fellowship with the Father. Profoundly aware of his fellowship with his Father. Two, he's profoundly aware that his Father has given him a job to do and has equipped him to do it. That's how Jesus opens his prayer, in fact. And three, he's profoundly aware that having accomplished that which God sent him to do, uh, the Father has promised to glorify him in heaven. So he's profoundly aware of his Father's presence. He's profoundly aware of the job his Father gave him to do and that his Father has empowered him to do it. And he's profoundly aware that he's on his way to heaven and that God will glorify him there. And do you see how those are precisely the things that Jesus makes possible for us to know through his death and resurrection? Because through the Easter events, through his death and resurrection, Jesus has secured those three things for us. Now we can be aware of the presence of God. We have fellowship with God. We have now a God-given purpose in life and the Spirit to empower us to do it. And we now have this new perspective, this resurrection perspective, that death is not the end, but that we shall be welcomed into heaven with the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. We have those same three foundations, if you like, that are the foundations of joy. So Christian built, um, sorry, Christian built, Christian joy is built on the promise of God for today and the promise of God for tomorrow. The promise of God for today is his presence and his purpose in our life. Joy, I think, is the product of being mindful of the presence of God and for his, of, of his good purposes for us and through us. That's the point Psalm 16 makes, isn't it? The psalmist writes this, I have set the Lord always before me. Because, because he is at my right hand, because I know he's at my right hand, because I've set him before me, I shall not be shaken. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. You see, the psalmist has consciously made himself mindful of the presence of God. And the presence of God has brought him joy. Joy flows from the mindfulness of God's presence. And that is because when we're mindful of God's presence, we find his grace uh, bringing joy, undercutting, undercutting the joy-killing culture of performance, which is what that article in The Guardian was all about. You see, the work of Christ has secured our forgiveness and made God our Father. So that means that when our own sins and failures whisper words of joy-killing guilt and shame, when we're mindful of the presence of the God of grace, we immediately hear the words of Jesus on the cross, it is finished. We immediately see that the, the Father's is, is, face is, is smiling, 
towards us. It's gracious. It's benevolent towards us because of the the work of Christ. Those those words of our sin are silenced by the grace of God, and that brings joy. In fact, what happens in the Christian life is even an awareness of our sin before the face of a gracious God of whom we are mindful becomes the road to deepening joy because it reminds us of what Christ has done for us. And in repentance, we embrace afresh the forgiveness that Christ has won. So even an awareness of our sin becomes or should become a road to deepening joy as we lay it before the Father in repentance. There is, as this article in The Guardian made clear, a joy-killing atmosphere in our culture of having to look and live and work in a way that establishes our sense of self and worth and value. If you think you have to establish your sense of self through your work or through your relationships or through your life or whatever it might be, that brings with it a joy-killing perspective. It's undercut by being mindful of the God of grace because we know that our sense of self and value and worth are God-given gifts. They're not something we have to work for. They're not dependent on our, quote, success in life. So we're freed from that pursuit, that endless pursuit of doing more, being more, thinking more, having more. We're free from that. That brings joy. Being conscious of the presence of God also brings a contentment, I think, in seasons of, for want of a better phrase, small things. Because life is often full of doing small things, having to do insignificant tasks. Uh, Life is often full of what one might call the daily grind. Or, Or there may be seasons in our life when we are doing things that, you know, our culture does not value or our culture thinks is of a low status. And it can feel dull and it can feel dissatisfying and it can be a joy killer if we view these things like that. But if we're, if we're mindful of the presence of God, we are mindful that, these, that God doesn't distinguish. There is no low status, high status in God's eyes. Whatever we're doing, if we're done wholeheartedly for the love of God, delights God. It's an extraordinary thought, isn't it? No matter what I'm doing, no matter how small it is, I, I said at the 9.30 that there's a, 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 a monk quite well known by the name of Brother Lawrence who talked about practicing the presence of God. And he was a, he was a monk who worked in the kitchens. <clears throat> and he found joy scrubbing pots and pans for however long it was, decades, because he knew that that was the task that God had given him to do and he could do it wholeheartedly and in that he was delighting his father. And so, of course, that brought him joy. And so, too, for us, whatever it is we're doing, whether our culture thinks it's high status or whether our culture thinks it's low status, doesn't make any difference. If we're mindful of the presence of God and that he is taking delight in what we are doing as we do it for him, then we can find joy even in seasons of small things. Here is Brother Lawrence, quote, We are not to be weary of doing little things for the love of God who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which it is performed. Brings joy. And I want to say thirdly that uh, this being mindful of the presence of God can bring hope, a joy-bringing hope, even in seasons of struggle. Because when we go through a season of sorrow or struggle or suffering, whatever it might be, 
if we are practicing the presence of God, if we are mindful of his presence in this, it makes it far easier to ask the hope-bringing, horizon-expanding question, what can God do in this? What might he be up to in this? How can I apply him to this season? See, in seasons of struggle, often our, our, the horizons collapse and all we can see is the struggle. <clears throat> Excuse me. But if we're mindful of the presence of God, immediately our eyes are raised just a little bit. The horizon gets pushed back just a little bit and we begin to ask the, the hope-giving, health-giving question. What might God be able to do in this? Confident, of course, that the God of all creation can bring fruit, even out of seasons that might appear barren. <clears throat> to our eyes. So joy comes from being um, mindful of the presence of God. And we want to be those, to use Brother Lawrence's words, who practice the presence of God. It's not easy. It's not a, a, a one, one-off thing. It is something we continually commit ourselves to doing, practicing the presence of God. It's about spiritual, those spiritual disciplines. It's about regularly celebrating communion, as we did at the 9.30, that reminds us that God is with us. It's about praying regularly. Brother Lawrence would talk about praying all the time. He said he didn't, he didn't have to go to chapel to pray. He was praying as he washed up. He was sending up bullet po- uh, prayers. And that was making him mindful that God was with him as he washed up those pots and pans. Uh, we, can, we can put sticky notes on top of our computer at work that just has a verse or two. <clears throat> just, to, just to make us mindful. God is here in this. Or on top of our television at home or whatever it might be. We can have um, Bible, a little Bible verse you know, sent to our phone or... Or, or written in our diary, or, or, or whatever it might be. Uh, we can listen to the, the Bible, or, or, or a sermon, or, or something in our car, or, or, or our, you know, on the commute. There are 101 ways that we can just help ourselves to practice the presence of God, make ourselves mindful that he is here, and that is the bedrock of our joy. So the fact that he is present, the fact that he's given us a purpose, we've spoken a little bit about that. Jesus was clearly mindful in his prayer in John 17 that God had given him a purpose and had empowered him to do it, and that brought him joy, Uh, even in his season of suffering, because he knew that was part of his particular purpose. Uh, And so to us, God has prepared good works for us to do, Paul says, and he... um, He'll prepare us to do those works. He'll empower us to do those works. And those works will bring him joy. And so bring us joy. There is no work too small, no work too insignificant, no work of such low status or value in our world's eyes that if we do it for God wholeheartedly, it brings him joy and delight. And that brings us joy and delight. The presence of God, the purpose of God, and of course we, we trust in the promise of God for tomorrow. Um, here's Psalm 16 again. My heart is glad, my being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I think Jesus had this in his heart and mind as he approached the cross. And I think it's what sustained him. The writer to the Hebrews says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He had a joy that was set before him, the joy of resurrection life that Psalm 16 promises. And it's a word to Jesus and it's a word to us. Even in the midst of long chapters of struggle and sorrow, Our joy is the confidence that that season will not be the final one. 
The resurrection of Jesus is the bedrock of our joy, for it secures us a future in which all historic sadnesses will be consumed by eternal gladness. One writer uh, <coughs> I've, um, I've read on, on joy uh, quite a bit talks about it being a fight. <coughs> he says joy is a fight, it's a battle. He's not naive about it, and I think he's right. But it's a battle worth fighting for. Jesus, uh, Jesus died to make his joy available. He wants to share it with us. He wants us to know it. But sometimes the light of these truths, some of which we've spoken about this morning, feels persistently dim. And, and it can feel like we are in absolute free fall and the darkness does not lift. And at those times as I close, I think it's helpful to remind ourselves, as we did in our Lent course, that we are, we are beings that have a biological aspect, a psychological aspect, an interior aspect, and a social aspect. And those three things are sort of united and that means that when we're in a season of free fall, it's good to, to, to think about those three things and address those three things. So first of all, we address our <coughs> excuse me, interiority. It's interesting, isn't it, in, in John 17, that Jesus said, I speak these things that you may have joy. In other words, Jesus says joy comes from his words. Joy, joy comes from the truths that he is speaking to his disciples there. So when we feel like we're in free fall, we want to be those who are consciously attaching ourselves to Jesus' words and making those truths about him, who he is, what he's like, what he's done for us, the bedrock of our joy, fixing our eyes on him. Secondly, the importance of the social relationships. Uh, when we feel that joy is far, far from us, are we connected to people? Are we still getting to church? Are we still getting into our small groups? Because God has given, given us each other for our joy. We, 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 we're designed to share joy with one another and help those who are struggling to feel it. <clears throat> and thirdly, the physiological aspect. Uh, it may indeed be that there is a physiological uh, issue at play that makes it, makes it hard for us to, uh, to take those truths that we know and to sort of... Uh, to know them rightly and to feel them rightly. It can be that our head and heart gets out of kilter because of physiological issues. And so we thank God for the common grace of doctors and medication. But also, it's interesting, isn't it, being physical creatures. It means that our physicality is linked to our interiority. The Puritans, of whom I'm a great fan, <coughs> used to speak about this a lot. And they used to say, in seasons of struggle, and when you felt dry spiritually, they used to say this, fold not the arms of action. Fold not the arms of action. In other words, even if you don't feel it, do it. Here's Richard Baxter. <clears throat> Richard Baxter said, it's good to praise God because he's praiseworthy. And then he said this, if you cannot do it, with the joy that you should, yet do it as you can. Doing it as you can is the way to be able to do it better. Thanksgiving stirreth up thankfulness in the heart. Isn't that interesting? Thanksgiving, the doing of the thanksgiving will stir up the feeling of thankfulness that you're lacking at the moment in your heart. Because he knows that what we do physically has an effect on what we feel inside. So there will be times when we won't feel particularly joyful or we want to praise the Lord, but 
But wisdom says, you know, we come to church to connect with others and we, we praise God for what we know is true of him, even if we're not necessarily particularly feeling it. And that's not hypocrisy. That's not hypocrisy. That is claiming the promise of God that he will honor our acts of obedience and by his spirit make them increasingly heartfelt as we pray for that. Jesus died to share his joy with us and his joy was a robust one. It was rooted in the presence of his father, the purpose he'd been given and his eternal perspective. And that is the joy that he offers us, that he shares with us, that he died to give us. And so let's be a people who resolve to pursue such joy with our hearts, and with our heads, and with our hands, in the confidence that God always grants the prayers of his people who pray for what he promises. Amen.